good Christmas and uh, looking forward to the new year, uh, doing some evaluation perhaps uh, as you approach the, the new year and um, maybe things that need to be adjusted, need to be changed, maybe things that need to continue. Um, it's always a good thing to do uh, around this time of year. And when you're thinking about that in particular, uh, I read a book, I think it was two years ago, uh, called The Road to Character uh, by a New York Times columnist named David Brooks. Maybe some of you've read uh, David's writings. Um, but in this book called The Road to Character, uh, he makes a, a strong distinction between two sets of character qualities. So he calls one set of character qualities the resume virtues and the other set of qualities he calls the eulogy virtues. Now, what's the difference between those two? Well, the resume virtues, as you can imagine, are those qualities that help you to get ahead in the workplace. Obviously, they bolster your resume. They make you a more appealing employee to your employer. And they help you land a better job. And they help you to succeed in what in our country can often be a very cutthroat workplace. You become the type of person, those qualities help you become the type of person that can get ahead in the workplace. Sometimes you're required to sort of step on other people to make your advancement. Uh, those qualities aren't inherently immoral, but Brooks says that the resume virtues are geared toward what he calls external success. Making more money, getting a better job, all of that. So what are the eulogy virtues? Well, we saw a really good example of that maybe a month ago when uh, former President George H.W. Bush passed away and his son, George W. Bush, who was also the president uh, at one point, gave the eulogy at his, at his funeral. Obviously, H.W. Bush was a man of accomplishment and whether you like him, whether you agree with his policies and what he did, he clearly was very, very successful in the workplace both in the private sector and the public sector. Um, and when, Dub, when his son, George W., gave his eulogy, he focused almost entirely on qualities that made his father a good father, a good son, a good husband, and just a better person. He didn't really talk about his accomplishments in the workplace and the qualities that had led him to be good in the workplace. Those are the eulogy virtues. The eulogy virtues are those qualities that we all want someone to say about us at our own funeral. We hope that someone will say things like, he was a good person, he was faithful, he was a man of integrity, he had humility, he sacrificed of his own you know, wants and desires for other people. Those are the eulogy virtues. Now, those two sets of virtues, it's not that one is good and one is bad, they're different, but we want to ask this morning, which set of virtues, which set of qualities does our culture tend to value? And a lot of times it goes without saying, but I think we would all look and say, our culture tends to value those qualities that will advance you in the workplace and that will help you to get ahead and make more money. And our culture, at least while you're living, maybe at your funeral, people tend to talk about the eulogy virtues, but at least in our children and in our society as a whole, we tend to downplay those qualities that we want someone to say about us at our funeral, the eulogy virtues, things like faithfulness and integrity and sacrifice. Why is that? Why 
would a culture value one set of qualities over the other and push people toward one set of qualities over this set? Well, the answer to that question of why we value the resume virtues is because we, we see a good life as being lived out of those qualities. Those qualities lead us to live a good life or a, a, a life of happiness or a life of fulfillment. The underlying question behind what qualities we value is what constitutes a life well lived. So what we end up doing is we implicitly, without saying it, we look toward the end goal, toward what we think is a good life, and then we sort of backtrack, again, a lot of times without saying it, and we say, okay, what qualities will lead me to have a good life and to a life of fulfillment? And so much of our culture is wrapped up with making money and advancing in the workplace that we implicitly value those qualities and we pursue those qualities. And so what we think constitutes a good life leads us to live in a certain way, we live in light of the end goal and the end game. Now, God has designed us to live a good life and to seek fulfillment and to seek satisfaction and happiness. He has made us that way, and it's not a, a bad thing to do that. Every person in this room wants someone to stand up at his or her funeral and say he or she lived a good life. They had a, a life of happiness and a virtue and of goodness. Another way to describe this, this life well lived, this good life, is with the term flourishing. When you hear that word flourishing, you think of, I think of a tree that's just doing really well, maybe a plant that is, is growing and is bearing fruit and is, is really appealing to the eye and the fruit is of a good quality. That's, that's what I think of when I think of flourishing. And that's another way to describe a life well lived, or as you can see on the screen, the good life. It's a life of flourishing. Now, this idea of flourishing and well-being and living a good life, this idea is wrapped up in so much of what we do as human beings, whether you realize it or not. It's sort of an all-encompassing desire that each one of us has, and it dictates the decisions we make and the qualities that we pursue in our lives every single day, even if we don't state it clearly. Listen to what one author said about this idea of flourishing or the good life, and I'll read this to you. It's a little hard to see on the screen, but listen closely to this. Human flourishing alone is the idea that encompasses all human activity and goals because there is nothing so natural and inescapable as the desire to live and live in peace, security, love, health, and happiness. So what he's saying is everything you did this week, every goal you have this year is aimed at a desire to live well and to flourish in your life. These are not merely cultural values or the desire of a certain people or time period. The desire for human flourishing motivates everything humans do both belief in religion and the rejection of it, monogamous marriage and a promiscuous lifestyle, waging war and making peace, studying history and creating art, planting fields and building skyscrapers. All human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the desire for life 
and flourishing individually and corporately. So, if this is our big picture goal, if, if flourishing, a life well lived, the good life is our big picture goal, and everything that you and I do is at some level motivated by that desire to live well, then we need to ask the question, what does it look like to live well? What qualities should we have that will lead us to the good life and to a life of flourishing? What type of people are said to flourish? Well, everyone answers that question in a different way, don't they? You hear narratives every single day that are answering that question, whether you realize it or not. But of course, as believers who believe and think that the Bible holds ultimate truth, it is ultimate truth, then we want to understand what the Bible has to say about living a good life, a life of flourishing and well-being. And that's what we're going to be looking at these next few weeks. It's interesting, even as I use that phrase, the good life, some of you might be sitting there with like a little bit of a hesitation going, ah, man, this, this is kind of sounding like sort of a health and wealth gospel thing, right? Like, like you're, you're kind of getting Osteen on me here, you know, living your best life now. And, and so you're kind of thinking that, that I'm going to say, maybe you don't really think this, but you're like, man, it, it sort of sounds like you're going to tell me to live the good life. I need a lot of stuff, and I need to be healthy and free from sin. And it, it sort of sounds like you're trending that way. And I would say to you that the reason that maybe that hesitation is there, which I totally understand, is because we have been so shaped by our culture to believe that the good life is found in money and in health, that when we even hear the phrase, Good, the good life, or a life well lived, or flourishing, we automatically go down that road because that's what we think it entails. We automatically go there, and so we can hardly imagine what the biblical teaching on this topic is and what it looks like. It may come as a shock to you, but the Bible has a lot to say about this, type, about this topic. What are human beings for? How are we intended to live? And what will lead us to satisfaction, happiness, and the good life? What qualities should we have that will, will lead us to a life of flourishing? Both the Old and the New Testament have a good bit to say about this. And what I'm going to argue over these next few weeks till the end of January is that this is the question that Jesus is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount. This is it. This is what he's going after in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, he is telling you and I how to live the good life, how to flourish, how to have a life that will be characterized at your funeral as one well-lived. That's what he's describing. Even in a sinful world, Jesus is teaching us how to live the good life in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And what he's saying is, in light of his coming, in light of the arrival of his kingdom, through his person and work, you and I can begin right now, in the present, this week, to live out the values and the qualities that are characteristic of his kingdom disciples. And when you live out those values in your life, those qualities, you will live well, and you will flourish, and you will have a good life, regardless of financial success and of health in that way. So what are those qualities? Well, open up to Matthew chapter 5 if you're not there yet. Matthew 5, and we're going to be in verses 3 through 16 uh, till the end of January. And I'm very excited about this. I love, 
this passage. And what we're going to try to do is I'm going to try to do a little bit of painting the next few weeks. And I'm going to try to paint a picture for you from the Beatitudes and from the salt and light passage in in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5. I'm going to try to paint a picture of a life that is flourishing and well-lived for you over the next few weeks. And I hope that as we're beginning the new year, that this will be motivating to you as you're looking forward to what sort of practices and habits you want to put in place in the coming year. Now, I want to read this description of the good life here in verses 3 through 16. And I'm going to start in verse 1, though, give you a little bit of context. Matthew 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house." In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I know that you all are quite familiar with this passage, particularly with the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. But if my argument is right, and I think it is, or else I wouldn't be teaching it, if my argument is right, then I think these are the qualities that you and I must pursue by the Holy Spirit to live well. So here's my plan over the next few weeks. I think the Beatitudes, there's nine of them. Maybe you've heard that there's eight. Maybe you've heard there's seven. I think there's nine of them because there's nine, there are nine occurrences of that word blessed, and that's the key to each Beatitude. So verses 3 to 12, there are nine occurrences of that word blessed, and I think they come in three sets of three. Matthew is an amazing writer. The whole Sermon on the Mount is beautifully structured, and the Beatitudes in particular come in three sets of three. The first three in verses 3 to 5 promote the virtue of humility. The second three in verses 6 through 8 promote the virtue of justice. And the last three, the third set in verses 9 through 12, promote the virtue of peace. And so we're going to take each one of those, each set of three over the next three weeks. It's a lot of threes in there, I get it. But we're going to take, we're going to take each of those qualities over the next few weeks, and we're going to study those in depth. And then we're going to try to show you how those qualities have to spread from you to others in verses 13 to 16. You're not just to 
to grow internally. But as you do that and as you begin to demonstrate those qualities, then you are the salt and you are the light and you will have an impact in the world around you. So today is kind of an introduction. It's definitely an introduction, but I'm going to try to set the table for you as we read the Beatitudes. And I want to help you to read the Beatitudes well and the right way. And I know you've heard the Beatitudes so often that it's, it's almost like the music that plays in the grocery store while you're shopping. It's like background noise. And I always, when I, I always think, is it like people that, if I were in the grocery store and I'd written a song that ended up on the radio and it was playing in the grocery store, would I be bummed out about that, that now it's background music and nothing more than playing while people are choosing you know, which type of butter they're gonna buy? But regardless, I don't want the Beatitudes to end up there for you, okay? As background music and as noise that you've seen so much and you've read so much that you really don't even hear it and it, it doesn't have an impact on you. I want to try to frame these in the right way and help you to read them in a way that will shape you and will change you in this coming year. So to keep the Beatitudes from the fate of the Meyer music, here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to give you four guidelines to read the Beatitudes well so that we can live a life of flourishing. That's the goal. I want you to live well this year, and I think reading these correctly is imperative to that. So four guidelines to read the Beatitudes well so we can live a life of flourishing. And here's the first one, first one of these guidelines. The Beatitudes paint a picture of the good life. The Beatitudes paint a picture of the good life. Now, my guess is the way I'm talking about this whole thing, the Sermon on the Mount, the way I'm talking about the Beatitudes as presenting the good life is something that is probably new to most of you this morning. Now, where, where am I coming up with this? Why am I framing this whole thing in this way as presenting the good life? Well, when you read the Beatitudes, it's all about how you understand that first word. The first word in each of the Beatitudes in English, is translated blessed. That's how it's normally translated. If you got a whole stack of different English Bible translations and you looked through them, the vast majority of them would translate it blessed. Now, there's a couple that translate it happy, and that's actually a little bit closer to the real, I think, intent of this word. But regardless, blessed is how most people translate this word. And that's how, most, that's how all of these begin. Now, I want, we have to talk about this this morning, and I'm going to try to keep this from getting too technical for you this morning, but you have to get this word right if you're going to understand this and read the Beatitudes in the right way. You cannot overstate how important understanding what Jesus is doing with this word is. One author writing on the sermon said this about the first word here, get this word right, the rest falls into place, get it wrong and the whole thing falls apart. Pretty important. So we want to read it correctly. The Greek word that, that's here has been translated blessed in most English translations. Now, when you hear the word blessed or blessed, as I do, and rightfully so, we think of divine approval or divine assessment of one's actions. Okay, let me show you this on a, on a little diagram here, all right? Divine blessing, right? It's, <laughs> I actually took this diagram from a book written on the Sermon on the Mount, so 
Um, I did not come up with this on my own, right? So you, you think of, when you hear the word blessed, you think, okay, God approves. God is making a divine assessment of this person. It's coming from the top down. God is looking down and he's saying, yes, you are, you are blessed. I'm placing my seal of approval on you. Now, there are both. There's a Hebrew word that means this, divine blessing or approval. There's also a Greek word that means divine approval. That Greek word is not the word that is used here. It's not. It's not the same word. And so it's kind of befuddling as to why this has been so often translated blessed. The problem with that translation, and maybe you've read the Beatitudes this way, is we can end up thinking that the way to earn God's approval is to be poor in spirit or to be meek. And so if I'm these things, then then I will be blessed, and then God will approve of me. And that's not what's happening here. And that's not a really healthy way to think about these character qualities at all. So this word, totally different word than blessed, this word is actually describing the human experience from the opposite side. Okay, so you're going to like this. This is the word that is being used here. It's a, it's a horizontal assessment of a good life. It's looking at a person's life from a very human perspective, and it's saying this is a life well lived. It's like what you would do at a loved one's funeral. You would assess his or her life, and you would say that was a life that was flourishing. It was well lived. This person lived the good life. It's like the opposite side of the coin from this other word. This would be like you and I getting together and talking about another church member and saying, man, they really seem to have it together. They, they're living well in their life. That's what this word is. Now, you know, ultimately, you can't have the good life without divine blessing. So these words kind of go together, but they're, they're two different notes that both contribute to the melody. And the note that is being struck over and over and over again in the Beatitudes is this note that is describing the good life and a life of flourishing. So what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is he's entering into this very human discussion that philosophers have had for centuries, that Greek philosophers had, that Jewish rabbis had of what does the good life look like. And Jesus is entering into that discussion here, and he's telling us what a life well-lived looks like in the Beatitudes. Now, with that focus on the good life in mind, I want you to notice something about the Beatitudes. Maybe you haven't noticed before. These are not commands. Look at them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's not a command. He's not commanding you or ordering you to do anything. What are these? These are statements. These are statements about the way the world really works. Everyone has their different opinion on what a good life looks like. Oprah frames it one way. Joel Osteen frames it another way. Actually, it's very similar to Oprah's. But these are statements from Jesus on what the good life actually looks like. They're not commands. You're not being commanded to do anything here, are you? 
at all in the Beatitudes. No commands. And so instead of listing nine commands for you to obey in order to cultivate the good life, Jesus is painting a beautiful work of art here. And he wants you to see this work of art, and he wants to inspire you to take up painting yourself. He wants you to live out the good life because of the picture that is in front of you here. If I want to get my son Cole to play basketball, I do not sit down with him and give him a list of 20 drills to do in order to become a good basketball player. What do I do? I pull up videos of Michael Jordan playing basketball, and I have him sit there and I have him watch. Or I pull up videos of Steph Curry hitting three-pointer after three-pointer after three-pointer, and he watches that, and then he says, I'll do the drills because I want to be that. How many great novelists decided to be writers because someone sat down with them and said, here are the five rules of grammar that you need to obey in order to be a great writer? No, they read, they read Charles Dickens or they read C.S. Lewis and they said, I want to do that. Give the person a vision of what the end game looks like and they will aspire to be that and to go toward that goal and they will do whatever it takes to reach that goal. There's one quote that I, I want to show you that I love that helps to make this point. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Give them a vision of what it looks like and then they'll do what they have to do to reach that vision. And so Jesus here doesn't teach the good life by giving us a list of commands to obey. There's nothing wrong with commands, but that's not what he's doing here. What he's doing here is he's painting a picture of the virtues that make the good life look appealing to us, that make these qualities look appealing to us. So instead of giving a command, he says things like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And then there's a desire in your heart when you think about what it's like to hunger and thirst and you think about righteousness and you think about the satisfaction that comes from thirsting and getting a nice cold glass of water and you think, I want to live in a way that provides that satisfaction. And that's what Jesus is doing with the Beatitudes. And we ought to read them in that way. So that's the first guideline to reading the Beatitudes well. The second one. The Beatitudes are virtues to be cultivated. Now, there's a massive difference between something that you do and, some, and, and a quality that you possess or that you are. Your actions flow out of the qualities that you possess, and the Beatitudes are spelling out qualities of character that you and I want to put on over time. We want to cultivate these things. We want to grow in these qualities of character. These become who we are. I mean, you know, if you've heard me teach for any amount of time, I love the word virtue. It's an old word, but it's a very nice summary of what Jesus is doing here. One author defined virtue this way. Virtues are excellences of character, habits, or dispositions of character that help us live well as human beings. So when you see that word habit up there, we think of habits mainly in terms of getting up at the same time every day 
or brushing your teeth every night before you go to bed, and those are habits. But we all have acquired habits of character and habits of disposition, the way we see the world, the way we feel in the world, attitudes that we have. We have habits of attitudes in our lives. They come very naturally to us. And just like brushing your teeth, when you do that every night before bed and every morning when you get up and you do it over and over again, eventually it comes to the point where you do it without thinking much about it. And it's natural to you. And it's the same way with virtue and with the opposite side of virtue, which is vice. It's a habit of character, a disposition that comes naturally to you over time. And you respond to circumstances in life out of your character, out of your virtue or out of your vice. So let me think of a positive and negative example. Uh, well, let me explain it this way first, okay? Think of, think of virtue as a, as, a, as a ditch that water runs in, in your character. The water very easily and naturally goes into that ditch and it runs in a certain direction. And so when life happens, water goes into the ditch. It's happened many times before and it's very natural and very easy for you to respond. So one negative and one positive example of that. It's quite possible for you to struggle with anxiety in life. And sometimes that struggle feels very natural and, and very normal for you or for me. And so maybe what's happened is through repeated responses in your mind, through handling circumstances in a similar way over and over again, and always jumping to the worst case scenario, what if, what if, what if, and you go to that place, then it creates a groove in your mind and in your character, and it feels very natural when that happens. That would be maybe a vice. It's not always like that, but that can be a vice that happens with that particular, particular issue, that particular disposition. On the flip side of that is the virtue of patience. When you're forced to wait, when you read the scriptures about the patience of Christ and you respond repeatedly to circumstances in life by trusting in the Lord, by waiting on him, then that creates a groove in your character where water runs. And then over time, when things happen, your natural response is to wait on the Lord and to trust in him and to have patience. And then you have become a person of patience. You are a patient person. You respond almost automatically with patience. That is real sanctification and real change that God wants to work in us. And that's what I'm saying the Beatitudes are. They are grooves in our character where water runs, and we ought to cultivate those grooves so that it's more natural and easier in some ways for the water to run in them for us to respond appropriately to life circumstances. Now, when you start this process, if you're trying to keep water from running out of a groove that's been there for a long time, it is, it is tough work. And it must be enabled by the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit. You can't just tough it out and make it happen. But it will happen. That's what sanctification is. And you don't develop these virtues overnight. You don't develop the, the virtue of meekness, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, flourishing are the meek. You don't do that in one day. It takes repeated engagement with the word of God, understanding what he has to say, being motivated by 
the biblical text through repeated action of meekness, and it creates a groove in your character, and you become a meek person. You have this character quality over time. And so the Beatitudes are not, here's how you should read the Beatitudes. They're not answering the question, how should I behave or what should I do? That's an end result of the Beatitudes, but they're, they're, they're provoking you to ponder what sort of person should I be? What qualities should I possess as a disciple of Jesus? So that's the second guideline. The third one is the Beatitudes are counter-cultural. So they paint a picture of the good life, their virtues to be cultivated, and the Beatitudes are counter-cultural. If you were to ask the average person living in our society today, what does the good life look like? There would probably be some very common answers. More money, more cars, more houses, better health, a little bit of Instagram fame wouldn't hurt anything either. That's what the good life looks like to most people. If you were to ask that question, people would decidedly not say, the good life looks like being poor in spirit. It looks like being persecuted. It looks like mourning. It looks like being meek. It looks like hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's, man, that's, that's the good life. That's what I picture as the good life. And Jesus comes along and he flips everything on its head. No matter what culture you are in, this is the opposite of that vision of the good life. And this is the true vision of what the good life looks like. You want to live well and flourish? Be poor in spirit. You want to squeeze all you can out of this life, hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's how you live well. But in our society, this vision of the good life is laughable, isn't it? I mean, it's crazy. You wouldn't come to this understanding of the good life by just thinking on your own and trying to ponder this on your own, and you certainly would not come to this vision of the good life by soaking in our media and in television and internet and social media and all of that and the, the vision of the good life that is presented to you day after day after day, advertisements, the whole deal, you would not come to this understanding of living well. And the only way to truly live well is to catch the vision of what Jesus is saying here and then to believe him, to trust him. And isn't this what we're called to do as Christians anyway? We read what Jesus says, and I'm just warning you up front, this is incredibly countercultural. This is not going to make sense. I mean, we, we laugh when we say the good life is to be poor in spirit or to mourn because it's so out of the ordinary. But this is what we're called to as believers. We read what Jesus says, and we trust him. And we say, if this is what you're saying, then I'll cultivate these qualities, and I'll pursue these things by your grace. When Jesus says that you must be a person who is ravenous for righteousness, then I'll do it. I'll go after that with everything that I am. And if you do that, you will be on the outside looking in, culturally speaking. You and I will be a spectacle to the world. 
when we live out this vision. And we'll be a spectacle to the world, not because of the clothes we wear or the music we listen to or any other external thing, but we'll be a spectacle because of who we are, because of the way we live life, because we have trusted our Savior when he tells us this is how to live well. So that's the third guideline. Read these statements of reality as countercultural because they are. And then lastly, how to read the Beatitudes well. The Beatitudes are only possible through Christ's rule. These virtues will not grow in you and I apart from the rule and reign and authority of Jesus Christ. Notice the context in which the Sermon on the Mount comes. Look back at chapter 4 and verse 17. Really, you should go back and read verses, chapters 1 to 4, but we won't do that this morning. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preaching the kingdom. It's the same thing we saw him doing in Mark. God's rule and reign is advancing in my person and work. Look down at verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. He's enacting the kingdom, showing you what it's like and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So he comes preaching the kingdom and he comes calling people to repent, to turn from their sin and to believe in him. God's reign is arriving through Jesus. Turn from your sin, turn to God, trust in him. And in the midst of this, in verses 18 through 22, he starts calling disciples to himself those who do respond in repentance and faith. And then look at chapter 5. We read it earlier, but look again. Who is the sermon given to? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. He's speaking the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, to his followers. You and I don't earn God's favor We do not earn our place in heaven. We don't earn God's approval by practicing the character qualities given in the Beatitudes. This is not a list of entrance requirements that you have to check off of your exam so that you can get into heaven. You don't obey the Sermon on the Mount in order to receive eternal life. These qualities are only possible when you acknowledge your need for Jesus as your Savior and you trust in his sacrificial death for sin. These are kingdom qualities of kingdom disciples. And as you'll see, well, probably won't see, but if you read to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, kingdom disciples will grow in these qualities. Because there are scary words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount for those who claim to be followers of Christ and who say, I know him, and yet don't act on these instructions. True growth in virtue and the good life cannot be had apart from Jesus Christ. And that's the message here. 
Jesus is not just another moral philosopher who comes along and presents a new vision for what the good life looks like. He is a savior who teaches his people out of love how to live when they trust him and obey him. None of this is possible apart from his work. So I'm excited to learn with you over the next few weeks. I love this passage of scripture. I think it's so helpful. But as we learn together, just one word of caution here. Becoming more knowledgeable about what each of these qualities in the Beatitudes looks like and understanding specifically what Jesus means by salt and light, because, man, who really knows what he's talking about there? We know it's some sort of influence on the world, but what does he actually mean by salt and light? Why does he use those metaphors there? But gaining the knowledge that we will hopefully gain over the next few weeks about this very common passage of Scripture is not our ultimate goal. Think of what we're doing over the next few weeks as the classroom edition of driver's education. You're going to get the tools that you need, but then you have to walk out of the classroom and you have to get in the car and you have to turn the key and you have to drive. And you have to put these things into practice by God's grace, by his enablement. And that's my goal. That's what I want for each one of us in the new year. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for your word. You do not leave us here to try to figure out what a life well-lived looks like, but you paint a beautiful picture of well-being and flourishing. And Lord, it is, it is so different from what our culture teaches us implicitly and explicitly that it's jarring to think of these qualities as leading to a life well-lived. At first glance, it's laughable to us. But I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would teach us and instruct us over the next few weeks and that, that we would become people who do hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would be meek so that we can inherit the earth. We thank you for this vision that's given to us here, and I pray that we would even now begin to put it into practice and consider these things, and by your grace and by your word, practice them this coming week. Grow us in these areas so that it can be more and more natural to us to respond to daily life by demonstrating the Beatitudes. Thank you for all you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.